Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm doing well as well. I'm glad you all made it here safely. I know that that was a little bit in doubt, but we're here. Praise the Lord. And uh, everything seems to be getting better out there. And I'm just excited to be here with you this morning. As we continue what has uh, been a great series so far, at least from my perspective, and that is the Undivided series. I have really enjoyed getting into this with you. Not just the messages, but then the conversations afterward with people and throughout the week have been really, really great. And uh, I'm just, I'm glad that we get to go through this together. I think it's a, a good series for us at this time in our church and something that is important for us to be able to talk about together. So we're going to continue this morning, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can go ahead and turn there if you want to. We'll, we'll go back there in just a minute, but I want to start off by um, just an observation. I think it's kind of funny how sometimes we can take little things and make them into big things. We can take sometimes the tiniest little issues and turn them into DEFCON 1, where you lose your car keys and it's the end of the world, right? Or you spill coffee on yourself and now your day is ruined. Or someone cuts in front of you on the road and you hate them now. I mean, you really literally hate them now because they just cut in front of you on the road. This week, as I was preparing for this morning and studying, I hit a point where I just kind of had a mental block. And uh, if, you've, if you're a writer or you're a speaker, you know sometimes as you're preparing, you just get to this point where your mind goes blank and you just realize, I am not getting anything else done here. I need to take a break and come back to this. So I went out of my office and I was at home um, and just needed a bit of a break. And my wife had just gotten home. So I went out to greet her and help her with bringing stuff in, and she had some important news for me that someone had taken a quarter and put it into the DVD player in the car, and, and it was now stuck in there, and it couldn't, couldn't get out. And, and that someone was her. And she, she had come out of Aldi, and you've got your Aldi quarter if you shop at Aldi, and she had the quarter. She put it in what she thought was a coin slot, turned out to be a DVD player, And the only way to get that thing out of there is to disassemble the whole front console, take apart the wires and shake the thing and hope that it doesn't get damaged. Little thing. Not a big deal. We've actually never used that DVD player and we would probably only use it once or twice a year on long road trips. But in the moment, it can seem like it's a big deal, right? It's a a big thing. And, and what happens, and you know this, you get this in your life, you're familiar with this, there's a phrase I'm going to show you, we blow things out of proportion, right? Isn't that what we do as human beings? We take little things and we make them big things. We take little things that really aren't that significant and we turn them into a big deal. And we want everybody to know about it. And here's what it all boils down to. It all boils down to perspective, It's all about your perspective, and here's why this is the case, and you you all know this already. When things are going well in your life, and something little like that happens, it's a big deal. But when life isn't going so well, when you've lost your job, when you've lost a loved one, when your kids aren't doing what you want them to do, when your marriage doesn't look like what you want that to look like, and something little like this happens, it doesn't feel good, but it's not nearly as big of a deal as some of this other stuff that's going on. It's all about perspective. It's putting it into perspective. And we have this problem as humans where we tend to blow things out of proportion. This is just as true when it comes to our beliefs as it is the little inconveniences that we face throughout the day. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. 
Last week, when we introduced the Undivided series, we introduced some important concepts about our beliefs. And we're going to continue that this morning as we look at how to put our beliefs into perspective and not blow things out of proportion. In the Bible, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul talked about the importance of prioritizing our beliefs correctly and making sure that what we believe and what we do is in perspective based on what matters most. We talked about that last week. And here's something that I I didn't get to share with you last week, but I, I think it's really interesting. Maybe you've never heard this before. One time when the Apostle Paul was in jail, there was a group of people who were trying to actively work and preach against Paul to attract followers of Paul to themselves for selfish reasons. They had bad motivations, and so they were out there, they were preaching the gospel, but they were doing so with false motivations, and really what they were trying to do was gain a following for themselves and take away from Paul. And so Paul wrote about these people, and what do you think he said? Did he say they're terrible, they're awful, they shouldn't be doing this, they've got wrong motives, they need to just be shut down? That's not what he said. Here's what Paul said. Even though I know they have wrong motives, even though I know they're doing some wrong stuff, even though I know they're doing this for the wrong reasons, I rejoice because the gospel is being preached. Isn't that amazing? If I were in Paul's shoes, I would be scheming up how I can sabotage what they're doing. And yet Paul says, I rejoice because the gospel matters most. He kept things in perspective. So here's something we talked about last time. I know you understand this already. This isn't news to you, but we will never agree on everything. Right? Do you agree with that? Is that the one thing we can all agree on? We will never agree on everything. That's just, that's just how life is. And so we need to decide what is really important for us to agree on. And that's why we introduce the buckets of belief. Here they are, dogma, doctrine, conviction, and preference. And we said something important last week about the unity of the church, and that is unity is not the absence of conflict. Unity is the mending of division. We will always have some differences over some things in the body of Christ. That's what this is. But what God and Paul call us to do is mend those differences, to be united even though we are undivided. In 1 Corinthians, which we looked at last week, we'll look at it again today, We saw that Paul said, you're not to fight, you're not to quarrel, you're not to divide, and yet I understand that you're going to have some differences. And that's okay. And he actually affirmed both sides on those things. So we tend to blow things out of proportion. And what we need to do is learn to prioritize our beliefs and the buckets help us to do that. Now, a couple of points about the buckets. The buckets are not inspired scripture. They are inspired by scripture. They are not inspired scripture. So these are categories that we've created that that are not really even all that new with us. There's some nuances that are fairly new, but this is something that theologians and pastors have been doing for centuries. You may never have heard of it before, but this goes back for a long, long time uh, of trying to come up with a way to categorize our beliefs to help us focus on what matters most. And so different theologians throughout centuries past have had different ways of doing it, but the goal is always the same, to recognize the fact that Jesus said these are the more important things, Paul said these are the more important things, and so how do we determine as we look at Scripture, we look at our beliefs, we look at social issues, we look at things that are facing us today, how do we determine what to prioritize up here and what to prioritize down here and everything in between? How do we, how do we work through that? And so the buckets help us to do that. But something else about the buckets, they're not separate individual buckets for a reason. They're inside of each other, and that's because our dogma is not separate from our doctrine. 
So our doctrines include our dogmas, okay? What's in the dogma bucket, that's doctrine too. It's just we need a fourth bucket to help us to distinguish between those doctrines that we say, these are important, we believe in them, absolutely, this is what the Word of God teaches as far as we're concerned, and yet there are people in other churches who believe that there's a different set of doctrine. What makes us both followers of Jesus Christ? What makes us both true believers and followers of God? that's why we need the fourth bucket. So your dogma is part of the doctrine, and the doctrine is part of the convictions. And of course, we prefer all of that stuff, and so they're concentric circles. They're inside of each other. Now, I want to say a few things about why we are studying this. And some of this isn't going to be new, but I just think it's important that we reference this. Why are we studying this undivided series, The Buckets of Belief? Well, number one, to teach us how to be united, even though we have some different views. That's important. We talked about that last week. Number two, to establish a common language that we can use to talk about our differences. It's really beneficial as we go through our conversations and life and interaction with family members and other believers for us to be able to not just correctly prioritize our beliefs, but all be on the same page about how we're doing that. So when you're in a conversation with someone and it's getting kind of heated and you're discussing your belief about something, I won't even mention what it might be, but just some secondary issue, it's really great for you to be able to say, you know what, I know I'm being really passionate about this, but I just want to make it clear, I understand that this is in the conviction bucket. And everybody else in that conversation, if they understand what we're talking about here, they all breathe a collective sigh of relief. They all go, oh, okay. Because we thought you were being really dogmatic about it. Like you have to believe this to be a Christian. It's really helpful for us to all be on the same page with our language, our terminology, to be able to talk about this. And I've, I've heard this already over the last week. People in, influencing their conversations based on the buckets and saying, well, I guess this is a preference. Or I guess this is a conviction. And it's helpful for us to put those things into perspective. But there's one more reason for this series that is absolutely crucial, and that is this. We want to be known by what we stand for more than what we stand against. We ought to be known more by what we stand for than what we stand against. Why is that? Because what we stand for is amazing. What we stand for as followers of God is absolutely incredible. And the things we stand against are important. Don't get me wrong. There are some important things that we should stand against. But when you compare that with what we stand for, it's so much higher. It's so much greater. And what happens to us when we focus on the things that we're against and we spend so much time railing against the things that we're against, we tend to forget about the core that we're actually supposed to be about. We tend to forget about the things that we're supposed to stand for. And we sort of push those to the side. And so we have a lot of people that in the process of standing against something have actually, I think what Jesus would have said about them is they've forgotten their first love. Because they focus so much on this thing that they're against. Good thing to be against. But have they taken things out of proportion? Have they lost sight of what Paul says matters most? What's really important? There is a false narrative out there about what it means to be a Christian, isn't there? There is a false narrative out there. And if you were to ask the average person who's not a follower of God, what does it mean to be a Christian? Do you think that they would say, well, it's all about God's grace and forgiveness? Probably not. 
Because there is a false narrative out there about what it means to be a follower of God. And it's all about all the stuff that we're against. We're against this, we're against this, we're against this, we're against this. We don't like that group of people. We don't like this group of people. And that is not what being a follower of God is about. You know that. I know that. They don't know that. And part of it's because of politicians. Part of it's because of the media. Part of it's because of the internet and social media. And most of it probably is just because of Christians. We focus on some secondary issues and we make it seem like that's the most important thing in the world. We have to put our beliefs in the right perspective. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in those other issues as well. We should. But we've got to keep things in perspective. The gospel is what matters most. So over the next few weeks, we are going to look at each of these buckets. And today we're going to talk about the dogma bucket. And I just want to be clear here that There are many, many things we could cover in this series. Lots more teaching we could go into that we're just not going to have time for. Because this really influences and impacts so many areas of our lives. So we may not cover every question you have over the course of this series. And here's what I would encourage you to do. Sit down with your family. Sit down with your community, your small group, whatever it is. And work through some of these issues together. Because based on the season of life you're in, based on the circumstances you're in right now, based on the family and the friends that you have around you, you are probably dealing with this in different ways than other people are. And we're not going to hit on everything. We're going to try to cover the major pieces to help you understand what should go into each of these buckets of belief. So the dogma bucket. As I'm going through this, here's kind of the perspective I'm approaching this this morning. The dogma of the gospel, the most important thing we believe, is something that we talk about in its term a lot. We use the term gospel a lot in Christian circles, but we don't often talk about what exactly that means. Where where does that come from? What all is included in that? And so today I just want to approach this like you and I are kind of out getting coffee together. And I actually have some coffee right here. Now I can preach. There's really coffee in there. It's my St. Louis mug. It's got the arch on it and everything. Oh, I'm, I'm full-blown into this thing now. And as we're here talking, you ask me, hey, so what exactly is the gospel about anyway? What is this all about? Christians talk about it all the time, but can you just explain it to me? And here's the thing about the the gospel. When we teach about the gospel, there's a spectrum we could go to here, from the most simple to the most complex. And we're going to throw a phrase up on the screen that I think is very true. The gospel message is so simple that a child can understand its basic principles, and yet so complex that the greatest theological minds in history have not been able to unravel its mysteries. Do you believe that? And we're not going to try to aim for either extreme this morning. We're not going to be overly simple. We're not going to be overly complex. Our goal is a relatively simple but thorough explanation of what is the gospel. And if you're new to church and all of this sounds new and weird to you, stick around because this is going to be a great introduction to what we really believe. Forget all the stuff you've seen in the media. Forget all the stuff you've read about online. You want to know what it means to be a Christian? This is the week. This is where we talk about it. I know it doesn't get a lot of press time, but this is the core of what being a follower of God is all about. So if you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is right where we left off last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In this letter, Paul is talking with people who are followers of God, 
And he has already explained to them that while they have these different beliefs, he doesn't want them to fight over secondary issues. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to talk about what's more important, what's most important. So not those other secondary things you were quarreling and dividing over. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 1, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news. That's the gospel. It's just another translation for the gospel. Gospel means good news. God's spell means good news. It went through a whole kind of etymology there. And another translation for it is good news. And he's reminding them. So this is something they already knew. And yet he wants to bring it up again. Why is that? We'll look at that in a minute. I preached to you before, you welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. So you've accepted this message, you believed it already, but you need to be reminded. And I wonder how many of us have accepted the gospel message, and yet we need to be reminded of it. It is this good news, he says, that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. In other words, if none of this is true, none of this actually matters. But this is the message that saves you. Verse 3, I passed on to you what was most important. Remember, he's talked to them already about divisions and differences, and now he says this is most important. He's going to unpack the gospel for them. And what has also been passed on to me, here it is, the gospel in a snapshot version. Christ died for our sins. Just as the scripture said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Now remember, this is a reminder to them. He's not explaining this for the first time. So you have to understand, this snapshot view of the gospel assumes some things. And so what I want to do now is walk through this short little passage together and fill in some of the gaps that his audience would have known. They would have understood this. He's just reminding them of some things they already know, and we need to fill in some of those gaps. And we're going to do this through six key points of the gospel. And I hope this makes it easy to remember. Just six key points. God, people, sin, Jesus, life reconciled. God, people, sin, Jesus, life reconciled. If you can remember those six key points, you've got a really good theological foundation for the gospel. So let's just walk through it together. First of all, Paul says, Christ died for our sins. What's that all about? Who is this Christ? Why did he have to die? Here's the history that his audience already understood. In the beginning, God created the universe. And God created people. He created people that were were good. And when God created that universe, by the way, in in the beginning, we've got a lot of secular scientists and atheists who would tell you that we have no idea what happened in the beginning. In fact, one really prominent atheist and astrophysicist said this, in the beginning, there was a question mark. All else followed the end. And so for a secular scientist, that's what they believe, that that we don't know what started everything. Was it quantum physics? Was it the laws of physics that caused the spontaneous production of matter? And how did that happen? How did the laws of physics even exist if there was no universe for there to be laws of physics for? And it just ends up being this really complicated thing. And that's why this noted scientist says, in the beginning, there was a question mark. Well, we believe that the Bible answers that question mark. In the beginning... God created the universe, the heavens and the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to read a, verse, a couple of verses for you. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, then we'll do verse 31. It says this, So God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then, verse 31, 
Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. So God created the universe. God created people. He created people that were good. Everything was very good. And our first point of the gospel is God made good and sinless people. Everything God made was initially good. The people did not have any sin. What is sin? Sin is anything we do that is in objection to God's character and his commands. Sin is anything that is contrary to what God wants, God's will. That's basically what sin is. We disobey, we rebel against God. It's rebelling against the things that God wants and the things that God has told us to do. And so what happened was the first humans, Adam and Eve, that were created by God, they were given a choice. You can eat of this tree of good and evil. And you're not supposed to. We told them not to do it, and they did it anyway. We're not going to kind of go into the whole story here. Most of you have heard that before. But what happens is, as you know, Eve is deceived by Satan, who is, who is in the form of a serpent, and he's trying to tempt her. He deceives her. She gives some fruit to Adam, who was not deceived, but he ate of it willingly, knowing that he was disobeying against God. And so sin ends up passing on to the rest of the people. But in the beginning, they were all good and sinless. Adam and Eve were good and sinless. So why does Christ have to die for our sins? Because they didn't stay that way. Because people didn't stay good and sinless. Look at Romans chapter 5. And as you, as you go to Romans chapter 5, I'm just going to tell you, for the rest of our time here, we're going to be in Romans 3 through 6. So if you go to Romans now, this is where we're going to be. We're going to jump around a little bit. So we're going to go to Romans 5 and then 6 and then 5 and then 6 and then 3 and then 6. And we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. And the reason for that is that Paul, as he's sharing this with the believers in Rome, is not trying to do it in the same chronological order that I am. He's communicating the same truths, but he's doing it in much more detail. And he's trying to work up a, a case in a different way. So we're going to have to jump around a little bit, but you're going to see it's all very close together, easy to flip around. I'll show you when to do that. And of course, it'll be on the screens as well. Romans chapter 5, if you're there. What happened with the first people and their sin against God? Romans 5 verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. So when Adam sinned, it caused a chain reaction, an inherited sin nature, we call it, where every one of us now is sinful, and we do sinful things. We all sin. And remember, that sin is anything that's contrary to what God has said. We all get this internally. Even people that don't believe in God understand that there is a moral code that's somehow baked into us. They understand that there are some things that are wrong. They know, they feel it when they've been wronged. Or even when other people have been wronged, they look on that with empathy and they realize, hey, something has happened here, something is wrong. That moral code comes from God. And that, that working against that, that is what we call sin. So even people's conscience speak to the sinfulness that we have. And so Adam and Eve's children and their grandchildren, they all had sin and so on and so forth down to us where we are all sinners. So number two, our second point of the gospel is people chose to disobey God and brought sin to all people. Now, why is that such a bad thing? What's the problem with us all being sinners? Eat, drink, be merry, die. I mean, what's, what's the big deal? Romans chapter 6. Jump ahead one chapter. Romans chapter 6, verse 20. Remember, Paul is talking to people who are already followers of God here, and here's what he says. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. In other words, no one could expect you to do right all the time because you were a slave to sin. You had this sinful nature inherited all the way back to Adam and Eve. You had this sinful nature that you had, and you were a slave to sin. So no one could expect you to do right. 
And what was the result? Verse 21. You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. So you couldn't be expected to do right, and yet the things you were doing were wrong, and they would end up in eternal doom. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. Romans 6.22. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves to God. Because you're not a God, by the way, you will always be under the authority of something. You'll always be under the influence of something. There'll always be pressures influencing you. And what Paul is saying here is that before you're a follower of God, that overarching authority over you that is pressuring you and and influencing you is sin. You are a slave to sin. You're in bondage to sin. After you become a follower of God, the power of sin no longer has that power over you. It doesn't mean you don't sin anymore. It doesn't mean you don't do bad things anymore. It means that now you are under God's umbrella. And you are now, he says, a slave of God. That's not a negative thing. That's not a bad thing. That means you are now owned by God. That's a really good thing. He's talking to people who are already followers of God here. And then he says, now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. So eternal doom versus eternal life. And then verse 23, for the wages or the penalty of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus, through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so point number three is now every person is a slave to sin, which separates us from God and requires a just penalty. The penalty for sin, the wages of our sin is death. And that death that he's talking about there, that eternal doom that is talked about there is not just a physical death. It is a spiritual death. It goes way beyond the physical. Eternal doom doesn't sound very nice, does it? And it's not. Because our actions, our sinful actions, have caused us to deserve the wages of our sin, which is death, a penalty that we deserve for rebelling against God. All of us have done things that cause us to be enemies of God. And we were born with a sinful nature that makes us automatically uh, influenced in that direction. And so we have the sinfulness that requires a penalty that a just God must give out. And every person is a slave to sin which separates us from God and requires that penalty. Now back to 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said Christ died for sinners. Well, why did Christ have to die? Christ, he's talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, part of the Godhead. Why did he have to die? Go back to Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 8 says this, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In other words, while we were still in that state of sinfulness, all of humanity in that inherited state of sinfulness, Jesus Christ came and he died for us. He died on a cross. You've probably all heard this before. Jesus Christ, he died on a cross, a terrible way to die, and he did so after living a perfect life, keeping every rule, every law, every principle perfectly. And so he was sinless. He had no sin And he's God, so when he pays a penalty, he pays an infinite penalty, which was enough to cover all of us. And so Paul says, and since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, that's the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, we have been made right in God's sight. Not that we are right, but we are made right in his sight because of what Jesus did for us. He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. 
In other words, not only are we made right in God's sight now, we have a relationship with God now that is right now, but for the future, we will be saved from condemnation. We're saved from condemnation now. We're saved from condemnation in the future because of what Jesus did for us by dying in our place. He paid a penalty that we could not pay for us to save us from the penalty of our sin. Jesus died to pay our penalty. That's point number four. Jesus died to pay our penalty. Now back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. Why does it matter that he was raised from the dead? What difference does it make? If his death is what secured the payment for the penalty, why does it matter that he then comes back to life? Romans chapter 6. Back in chapter 6 again, verse 9 says this, We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead. And he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. And when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. You see, by coming back to life, Jesus proved that he could conquer sin and death. He overcame it. He was victorious over it. And so we can be too because it's through Jesus Christ that God sees us. He doesn't see us for the wrong things we've done if we have trusted in him. He doesn't see us that way. He sees us through the lens of what Jesus Christ did for us. And because Jesus Christ died and paid our penalty and then rose from the dead, he is alive. He lives for the glory of God and we can too. We can be victorious as he is. Because he gives that to us. A dead Savior isn't very helpful. And the Bible says that Jesus now stands in representation for us before God to represent us to God and essentially say, I paid for their sin. I covered that. He now represents us to God and says, no, 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 see them through me, through my righteousness that I am giving to them. Number five, he, Jesus, then came back to life, conquering sin and death. And because God did all of this for us, something incredible is available to us. This is in Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 verse 21 says, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. In other words, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to do anything to earn this. There's nothing good that we can do to earn God's favor and salvation and a right relationship with him. It's not about keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true. For everyone who believes, no matter who we are. This is an amazing thing. That God who created us, human people who rebelled against him, brought sin onto the entire human race, would then decide that, you know what, I'm going to now pay the penalty for them so they can have a relationship that is restored with me like we used to have way back then, and then they messed it up, and now I'm going to make a way because Jesus Christ, who is sinless and perfect, is going to die for them, pay a penalty for them, and all they have to do is believe and trust in that, and then they will get that righteousness. 
and I will see them through the payment of Jesus, not through their own wrongdoing. And so point number six is now we can be reconciled to God. We can be free from the power of sin. We can be free from death, not physical death, spiritual death, separation from God, the eternal doom that Paul talks about that is to come for those who don't know God, who don't have a relationship with God. And it's not by keeping the law perfectly. It's not by good things that we do. Titus 3.5 says it's not by our own works of righteousness that God saves us. It's his mercy. It's not something we can earn. It's something Jesus has done for us and that he offers to us. That is our dogma. That's what goes in the dogma bucket. That's what you need to believe to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What would be an example of something that doesn't fit in that dogma bucket? Well, if you believe that there are certain things that you have to do to earn salvation, it's not what the Bible says. That's not the plain, clear teaching of Scripture. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Titus 3, 5 both tell us that it has nothing to do with the things that we can do and accomplish. It is all about God. It is just placing faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says. That's salvation. That's what it takes to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. That is our dogma. We have something amazing that we stand for. And I want to help you understand the magnitude of what this is. Because what we've just walked through is kind of a, it's a very biblical explanation, which is, which is true. It's, a, it's a kind of a theological explanation, but I want you to feel what this means. Because just like the believers that Paul was writing to in Corinth, where he says, I want to remind you of this. I think we need a reminder. Those of you who are followers of God, we need reminders of the gospel. Because for us, so many times, it's just treated as that thing that we believed a long time ago. And now we just kind of go on with life. We need a reminder. What did this mean? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine with me a village 200 years ago. A large village. And they're struggling right now because they've had a food shortage. So they're dealing with a a loss of food. It's not like they've got a severe famine. People have enough food they can eat. But what they don't have are some of the nicer foods. So the wealthier people, they've got stuff like meat and corn. And the, the poorer people, they're all eating rice and beans, okay? And what happens in this village is after a while uh, with this food shortage, you've got a lot of people who've decided, you know what, I'd really like some of that nicer food. So I'm going to go into somebody's house and I'm just going to take it. And stealing becomes a major problem in this village. So much so that the whole village, big village, is just up in arms and comes to the leader of the village and says, you've got to do something about this. We're about ready to start fighting and killing each other because people keep stealing our food. And we're fed up with it. And so the village leader says this. We are going to institute our harshest punishment now for stealing food. And that will be 40, no, no, 100 lashes with a whip. We're going to have 100 lashes with a whip be the punishment for stealing food in this village. And he thinks that's going to take care of it. Problem solved. No one's going to risk that. That kind of a punishment, it could kill you if you're, if you're smaller If you're not a big burly dude, that kind of a punishment, it could end up killing you and this is going to take care of it. And so he thinks all is done. Everybody's going to stop with this. And the next day, they catch someone in the act of stealing. A young girl, teenage girl, was very hungry, had run away from home a few months earlier 
And she walked into somebody's house when they weren't looking, saw some food. She took it, ate it. They caught her in the act, and they brought her to this village leader so that he could dole out punishment on her just like he had prescribed. And a crowd was forming to watch and see as this person would be punished. And the village leader walked out of his house to see that the person they caught was his own daughter. What would he do? The crowd is up in arms. Some of them expect him to just look the other way. And he knows that if he does, if he doesn't issue justice in this moment, there's going to be anarchy in this village. And they'll probably lead to more stealing and more fighting and more killing and more deaths if he does not issue this punishment on his own daughter. She had run away from home a few months ago. And he's disappointed that she was stealing food, but that doesn't even matter now compared to the fact that this little girl, his little girl, he knows there's no way she's going to survive this. This is too much for her, her hungry, starving little body to handle. What does he do? He has to be just. And so he orders her tied to the whipping post. And he tells the whipper to get ready. And then he takes off his shirt. He puts himself over his little girl and tells them to start. And he takes the full beating for her. It's not a perfect illustration. But it's the best thing I can think of to help us to feel what God did for us. Think about it. We're so far removed from it that we forget the magnitude of the gospel, what we stand for as followers of God. It's this incredible thing, this incredible life-changing thing. Jesus Christ stepped in front of the punishment for us, took all of the beating for us so that we wouldn't have to take it. And what we're talking about that God did for us is infinitely greater in scale than the story that I just shared. What do you think the relationship looked like for the little girl with her dad after this? The little girl who ran away from home. Do you think she loved her dad? Isaiah 53, 5 says this. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. That's what Jesus did for us. That's the dogma that we stand for. And we fight and squabble over so many other things, forgetting the fact that God has has paid a penalty for us and rescued us and redeemed us. And for those of you that aren't followers of God, He's made a way for you to become a follower of Him, to have that grace and mercy applied to you. That's what we stand for. It's so much bigger than anything we stand against. And some of the things we stand against are important to stand against, but let's keep things in perspective. 
This is what God did for us. He was whipped for us, beaten for us, killed for us. And then he came back to life to prove that he can be victorious for us. And now he's applied that to us. I have two thoughts that I want to leave you with today. Two things that we need to get because of the gospel. First of all, if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ's payment for your sin, you've believed in him as your savior, you know the gospel that I explained today, but you need to know that the gospel is not just a gateway to salvation. The gospel is a pathway that we are on now. It's not just a gateway to salvation. The gospel has an impact on our everyday lives now. The gospel isn't just something that we believe intellectually a long time ago to get our ticket to heaven. It's not how that works. The gospel isn't just a message that we share with people who don't have a relationship with God. The gospel represents a new way of living. The gospel means our relationship with God is completely different than it was before because of what he has done for us. The gospel changes everything for you every day, or at least it should. Let me give you a few examples of this. The gospel is what frees you from bondage to sin. We talked about that, the power of sin, that it no longer has over you, the ability for you to break free from some of those hurts and habits and hang-ups, as we'd say in Celebrate Recovery, those things that, that you think you're in bondage to. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not in bondage to those things. God can break the power of those things in your life. We don't always live like that. The gospel is why you don't live under condemnation for the sins you still commit every day. We still sin. You sin. I sin. We still do wrong things that are in opposition to God's will for us. And yet, because of the gospel, today, God says those sins, they don't count against you. You still shouldn't do it. Paul talks about that. He says, what, should we go on sinning because God's grace is applied to our sin? He says, no, of course not. We shouldn't go on sinning, but here's the thing. Because of the gospel, because of the good news about Jesus Christ When we sin on this gospel path that we're on, it's almost like we kind of take a step off the path. And we go, oh no, I I sinned, oh, this is terrible, and we we feel guilty, and we might have shame over it, and and we get back on the path. And we might live for a long time thinking, oh, that, that sin that I committed, that guilt, that shame that I have over that. And God is going, you gotta understand, I I paid for that. I've forgiven that. That's covered. I don't see you through the lens of your own sin, not the sins of the past, not the sins now. Not that I want you to continue sinning, of course not. But you've got to understand the guilt and the shame that many of you live with every day because of things that you have done, God has said, I forgive that today. And you don't have to live under that guilt and that shame any longer. Not because it wasn't wrong, but because it was paid for. And in a sense, When we continue to live under guilt and shame, it's almost like we're saying, God, what you did wasn't good enough. I still have to be punished by my my feelings for the things that I've done. The payment from Jesus wasn't enough. No, God says, I have forgiven that already. The gospel is why you don't live under condemnation for the sins you commit every day. The gospel, number three, should make it easy for us to love and forgive each other despite our differences. When you think about what God did for us, taking that beating for us, being killed for us, paying a penalty for us, all that he did so he could forgive us, how dare we hold bitterness against another person and not forgive them? 
with what God has forgiven us for. How can we even think about not forgiving other people? Number four, the gospel should make our homes and this church the most loving, welcoming, friendly environments on the planet. The gospel should make your home and this church the most loving, welcoming, and friendly place on the planet. And I know it doesn't always look that way. My house doesn't always look that way. But think about what the gospel means for us. We are new creatures. We are new people. We're not in bondage to sin. We're supposed to be forgiving people, gracious with people. We have the love of God that is applied to us. And yet sometimes we just go on living like it never even happened. The gospel changes your life every single day. Number five, the gospel should lead to continual growth and maturing as we surrender daily to God's work of refinement in our lives. You're no longer a slave to sin. God wants to see you grow and mature, and all of that is thanks to the gospel that empowers and enables a new relationship with God that allows that to happen. And number six, the gospel should cause us to serve others. We now serve God instead of sin. And we have a God who says, I have redeemed you. I have reconciled you to me. I've given you a new life, a new purpose. I've given you gifts and abilities. And now I want you to go serve other people. He said, what you do to the least of these, it's like you're doing it unto me. He said, I've given you gifts to use in the church, to serve other people in the church and to serve people outside of the church. And the gospel should cause us to serve others. The gospel is not just the gateway to salvation. It affects every day of our lives, or at least it should. The other thought that I want to share with you in closing is for those of you that are not followers of God. And maybe you're here and you're listening to this and you're thinking, this all sounds great, but I don't have that relationship with God. I still struggle with the bondage to sin, and I I don't think I've ever actually trusted in Jesus Christ to apply that payment for me. Here's my message for you. We're going to sing a song in a little bit. And we're going to have an opportunity for people to be up here that you can come talk with and you can pray with. And if you just want to come forward for prayer, you can do that. But if you are out there thinking, I don't believe I have that in my life. Or maybe I thought I did. But there was all this other stuff I thought I had to do. Or maybe I've never even thought about this before. I never understood it this way before. I didn't get how that all fit together before. And God is doing a work in your heart right now. And he is tugging at you and drawing you to himself. And he is saying, I want you to have this too. This relationship with me. If that's you, I'm not going to make you come forward right now. I'm not going to make you raise your hand or anything like that right now. Here's what I would say to you. I want to talk with you. We have people who will be up here who will want to talk with you. And we want to introduce you to Jesus Christ. We want to show you what it means to be a follower of God and have that conversation with you. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for what you have done for us. God, it's absolutely amazing. We don't deserve it. Nothing we could have done could deserve what you did for us. And you have allowed us not just to be saved from our sin, but to actually be called your children. And you stepped in front of our penalty. You took it all, every bit of it, so that we could have a relationship with you. So that we wouldn't face eternal doom or condemnation or bondage to sin or the power of death or separation from you. 
And yet, Lord, so often we don't live like we have the freedom that we have in the gospel. We continue to live in guilt and shame. We continue to act as though it was just that thing that we did a while ago. We, we push on things that we're against without remembering all the incredible things that we're for. And so I ask, Lord, that you would help us as a church and as individuals to be known for this incredible message of the gospel. What we stand for is so much more important than what we stand against. And we pray all of this in your son's name who died for us. Amen.